Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host today, my favorite co-host of all. It's just me this week. If you're curious why this podcast has been so inactive lately in terms of releasing brand new episodes, that's because you're not a Patreon or Supercast subscriber. Since way back in October, I've been releasing solo episodes about the strange 2002 death of Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone. What you're about to listen to is the single episode version of that deep, deep dive. Don't worry, it's not going to be a thing where we get halfway through and then you have to subscribe to hear the conclusion. No, I'm going to tell you the story from beginning to end. That said, if you want to hear a way longer version of this podcast, a four-episode version that features more than an hour of extra details and information, just subscribe at patreon.com unpops or unpopsnetwork.supercast.tech. If you don't want to do that, hey, I love you all the same and appreciate you listening to this right now. Let's get to it. This all started when a listener suggested I check out a book called American Assassination, The Strange Death of Senator Paul Wellstone. It sounded intriguing, so I looked it up, and it turns out the book is now out of print and sort of hard to find. And you know that's exactly my kind of thing. So I ponied up and bought a copy. And oh man, it is a wild ride. So a lot of what you're going to hear today is based on that book. That said, as I discuss at length on the full version of this podcast, the authors of that book, at least one of them, is kind of a sketchy source. So I also did my very best to look into their claims myself whenever possible. If you want to see a complete list of all the references and resources that went into this, just check out the show notes on unpops.com, which will be up shortly after this episode goes up. And now, with all that out of the way, let's talk about the strange death of Senator Paul Wellstone. The first and most obvious question, who was Paul Wellstone? If you're unfamiliar, he was a U.S. Senator from Minnesota who served from 1991 until his untimely death in 2002. He was often called the conscience of the Senate. After his death, Republicans spent years trying to undo the legitimately good and beneficial things he did during his career. Case in point, if you're at all familiar with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision, you know it was an objectively bad thing that cleared the way for corporations and labor unions to run attack ads against political candidates right up until the day of the election, with no limits on how much money they can spend doing it. And what that argument centered around in the Supreme Court was the 2002 bipartisan campaign reform bill, and more specifically, the Wellstone Amendment, which, as the name implies, was written by Paul Wellstone. Under that amendment, groups like the NRA or the Sierra Club couldn't run issue ads that attack or endorse a candidate within 30 days of a primary, or within 60 days of an election. And that sounds nice, 
right? Well, unfortunately, the Supreme Court decided it violated the First Amendment because corporations are people too. But still, it's a good indicator that Wellstone's heart was in the right place. If you actually support the idea of corporate money influencing our elections with no limits or regulations, you are exactly the government bootlicker you think you aren't. But one of the things Paul Wellstone was known for throughout his career was being one of the most vocal and effective opponents of United States foreign policy in the Middle East. Starting from way back in 1991, when nine days after being sworn in for his first term as senator, he voted against a resolution authorizing U.S. military force against Iraq, something that led to him receiving death threats just two weeks into his first term. Those threats were so intense they were eventually investigated by the FBI. But he was already familiar to the FBI well before that. Files that were made public in 2010 revealed that the FBI had been tracking Paul Wellstone since 1971, when he was a 25-year-old college professor who opposed the Vietnam War. The FBI is going to be a very important player. We'll get back to them later. For now, Let's fast forward to 2002. Paul Wellstone had repeatedly promised that he'd only served two terms in the Senate. Minnesota, at least at the time, very notoriously disliked career politicians. I mean, that shouldn't come as a surprise. They elected Jesse Ventura to be their governor, after all. And Wellstone came into office giving off lots of not-a-career-politician energy. But by 2002 it became apparent that he was going to seek that third term in office. There was a Republican administration that he disagreed with vehemently in the White House, and Democrats held a very slim margin in the Senate. Now is not the time for me to walk away, he was quoted as saying at the time. And Republicans saw this change of course by Wellstone as an opportunity. He had one of the most liberal voting records in the Senate, fighting the Bush administration over everything from the environment to farm policy to bankruptcy legislation, everything in between. But now, Paul Wellstone had a credibility problem, and that made his campaign vulnerable. Here's a quote from Lawrence Jacobs, a political scientist at the University of Minnesota, speaking to the New York Times back when the campaign was happening. Wellstone has always portrayed himself as the commitment candidate. Even though you don't agree with me, you can trust me. I think his decision to go back on the two-term pledge really eats away at that. End quote. And the Bush-Cheney machine, they were so excited about this, they even handpicked the Republican who would challenge Paul Wellstone. And that was St. Paul Mayor and former Democrat Norm Coleman. Dick Cheney actually talked another candidate out of running so Coleman could run in his place. That's how much the Republicans valued the Senate seat. And things seemed to be breaking their way. Coleman held a slight lead in both polling and fundraising throughout most of the campaign. It seemed like Wellstone's broken promise about running for a third term really was going to cost him his Senate seat. But then something remarkable happened. On October 10th, 2002, a vote was held on the Bush administration's authorization of the use of force against Iraq. And Wellstone voted against it. That made him one of only 11 senators 
all Democrats, by the way, who voted against both the 1991 and 2002 wars in Iraq. It also gave him an unexpected surge in the polls. Despite reportedly going home the night after the vote and telling his wife, Sheila, that he'd just cost himself the election, polls conducted the next day showed Wellstone now held a 47% to 41% lead over Norm Coleman. Turns out his concerns were incorrect. Voting against the second war in Iraq gave his campaign new life. Sadly, Paul Wellstone would not live to see the outcome of that election. At 10.22 a.m. on October 25th, 2002, near Eveleth, Minnesota, Senator Wellstone his wife, his daughter, three staff members, and two pilots were killed when the Beechcraft King Air A-100 twin-engine airplane they were flying in crashed. The senator and his family and staff were traveling to Eveleth for the funeral of Martin Rukavina, a steelworker whose son Tom served in the Minnesota House of Representatives. Thoughts and prayers from all sides of the aisle started pouring in immediately. Republican Senator Phil Graham of Texas called Wellstone a man of conviction who never swayed from his beliefs, even when he was fighting a lonely battle. Democratic Senator Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts said, All of us who knew Paul Wellstone are devastated today. We will miss you, Paul, and we will never forget you. And Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura added, Today, the state of Minnesota has suffered a deep and penetrating loss, Vince McMahon. Something else started circulating immediately. News reports in all the major outlets claiming that Wellstone's plane was flying in severely inclement weather. CNN, Fox News, CBS, NBC, ABC, local Minnesota news, all the outlets reporting the same thing. Terrible weather. I want to bring up one of those articles in particular. It's called NTSB Studies Weather in Wellstone Crash. It was posted on CNN.com on October 28, 2002, just a few days after the crash. First off, let's read the second paragraph of the article. Investigators have discovered the aircraft was off course, heading south and away from the runway when it crashed Friday morning. Pilots were reporting light icing conditions in the area, and investigators are examining whether de-icing equipment on the plane was working properly, said Carol Carmody, the NTSB's acting chairwoman. The NTSB, of course, being the National Transportation Safety Board. And for starters, remember that name, Carol Carmody. She's going to come up a lot over the course of this. Also, that statement in and of itself, seemingly normal as it may be, is actually immediately odd on account of this statement from the NTSB website. Here goes. At least once daily during the on-scene phase of an investigation, one of the five members of the safety board itself who accompanies the team briefs the media on the latest factual information developed by the team. While a career investigator runs the inquiry as investigator in charge, the board member is the primary spokesperson for the investigation. A public affairs officer also maintains contact with the media. Confirmed factual information is released. There is no speculation over cause. Did you catch that last sentence? No speculation over cause. But right here in the second paragraph of an article you can still read online is NTSB acting chairwoman Carol Carmody 
speculating away that maybe the de-icing equipment was the problem in this crash. And there are a couple more really important quotes in that CNN article. Here's one of them. In addition, the Federal Aviation Administration found a high-frequency radio beacon used to guide aircraft toward the airport was slightly out of tolerance, Carmody said, but additional tests were being conducted And we don't know how significant that is. Not only is that more speculation, but it's an extremely important piece of speculation. Write it down. Here comes another. This is also a quote from the article. NTSB investigator Robert Benzen said pilots can tell if the system, known as VOR, has a significant malfunction. If it becomes grossly out of tolerance, dangerous, then it shuts itself down. The pilots can tell that and they go someplace else. It wasn't to that state yet. So for one thing, it's weird that we have two members of the NTSB both saying the VOR system might have had something to do with it, and then also saying, in the span of the same article, that the pilots would know if there was something wrong with the VOR system and they would do something about it. But that VOR system is integral to both the official NTSB report about the crash, which would arrive months later, and also the conspiracy theories that surround the crash. So go ahead and toss it in your memory palace now. It will come up again soon. And now here's another interesting quote from another article that you can still read right now online. On October 25th, 2002, the Associated Press posted an article aptly titled, Senator Wellstone Dies in Plane Crash, which included this quote. At the site, FBI spokesman Paul McCabe said there was no indication the crash was related to terrorism. Now, please note, this article went up on October 25th. That is the day of the crash. And here's the thing. How do you know? I get that the FBI is good at their job, but that is a shockingly short turnaround time to come to a conclusion of that magnitude. Like, just even on the surface, that's weird. One would think, in a case as high profile as this, authorities would not want to jump to conclusions in the media right away. But it's also suspect for reasons beyond that, and we'll get to them. But before we do, it's worth noting that shortly after the crash also, acting NTSB chairwoman Carol Carmody announced the plane Wellstone was flying in was equipped with a cockpit voice recorder and that finding it would be priority number one. All of this is suspicious. Everything I've said to this point, as normal as some of it may be, is all weird. Let's talk about why. Up first, those weather reports. Regarding the inclement weather, what none of those stories bothered to report is that planes were taking off and landing in that exact same weather at that same airport before and after the crash. Automated instruments at Eveleth Airport at 10.14 a.m., which is right before the crash, reported the following conditions. Light snow, calm wind, visibility of three miles, which you might recognize as not being particularly inclement weather. But the most telling example of why the weather reports were suspicious 
involved the actions of a guy named Gary Ullman, who owned an aviation company based out of Eveleth Airport. After hearing that Wellstone's plane failed to arrive, he immediately took off in a plane of his own to look for the wreckage, so as to alert rescue teams and medical personnel to its location. He, along with other local pilots who flew into Eveleth around the same time, all confirmed that the weather wasn't that bad. Visibility was well above the one-mile minimum required to safely land, and that icing wasn't any more extreme than normal. Nevertheless, a couple days later, an NTSB spokesperson took to the news again to report that bad weather probably caused the crash. I've already touched on why that's problematic. The NTSB isn't supposed to speculate in situations like this. Essentially, before the wreckage had even stopped burning, news outlets all around the country were flooded with stories about how this crash was probably caused by freezing rain and snow, limited visibility, icing on the wings, even though actual pilots in the area reported weather conditions that wildly conflicted with those claims. And there are lots of other details that put the weather explanation in doubt. For one thing, the type of plane Wellstone was traveling in is equipped with a de-icing system, just like most other planes. If that system failed, a warning system should have alerted the pilots, at which point you'd expect they'd report some sort of issue that was impacting the flight. But nope, prior to the plane going down, there was no distress call, no indication from the pilots that things were going wrong. The last transmission from the cockpit was at 10.18 a.m., and by all accounts, there was no evidence from the pilot's voice that there was any difficulty. No reported problems, no expressed concerns. And then two minutes later, the plane went down. So obviously, something changed drastically in the seconds after that final, seemingly stress-free communication from the pilots at 10.18 a.m. Because radar showed that at 10.19 a.m., the plane began drifting slightly to the south. The last appearance on radar was about two minutes later when the plane was just north of the crash site's east side. Here's a quote from a local news report at the time. They were no longer in control of the aircraft. That will be the $64 question. What occurred in the last few minutes that distracted them or caused them to wrestle control of the aircraft. Something caused them at low altitude to veer off course. An article in the Duluth News Tribune shortly after the crash includes this quote, Veteran pilots remain puzzled by the plane's bizarre path during the final moments of its flight Friday and theorize that a propeller failed or that the plane hit a flock of geese as it approached the airport. Something dramatic happened, and whatever it was, it happened very quickly. That's a quote from Bob Peasley, a longtime Northwest Airlines pilot. Except here's the thing. If that was the case, why no communication from the pilots? Why would they not report that to air traffic control? Why no distress signal? Ceasing all communications because your plane hit a flock of geese and lost a propeller is not how things would go. These were experienced pilots. If something happened that caused them to lose control of the flight, they would have communicated that. Whatever happened caused them to not only lose control, but also communication. And National Center for Atmospheric Research meteorologist Ben Bernstein, who studied radar and satellite imagery from the time of the crash, 
said this to NPR, without actually going in there with an aircraft and putting probes and instruments in there, there's no way for us to know for certain how severe the conditions may have been. But looking at the data we did look at, it didn't appear to be a particularly severe situation. This case looked like something that wasn't really far out of the norm. And then there's the details about one of the pilots, Richard Connery, who we will get way, way, way more into, but... For now, just know that he was known to be very averse to flying in inclement weather. He called the FAA twice before this flight happened. The first call, he was told he might encounter moderate icing. And at that point, according to the LA Times and other sources, he considered canceling the flight. But on that second call, he was told the wind was calm, there was light snow, and visibility was three miles just like those automated instruments at Eveleth Airport reported at 10.14 a.m. And his response to hearing that? Okay, that's what I need. At least it's above my minimum here. End quote. So he had a set of standards in terms of weather, and he wouldn't fly if those weren't met. In this case, they weren't just met, they were exceeded. In other words, the weather wasn't even sort of as bad as those initial reports made it out to be. Which begs the question, where was the NTSB getting this information, which it then shared with the media in direct violation of their own policies as stated on their own website both then and now? And why did their only share the facts policy not apply to this particular airline disaster in the first place? Along those same lines, one question that has never been answered is why was the FBI even there? Or, at the very least, why were they there before the NTSB? That's a thing we have since confirmed. The FBI got there first. And... To put it simply, that is not how it's supposed to work. The NTSB investigates first, and if they find evidence of malfeasance, they alert the FBI. The FBI has no reason to be on the scene of a plane crash unless a crime has occurred. The authors of American Assassination reached out to the NTSB about protocol for plane crash investigations. And here's what a spokesperson told them. For aviation incidents, no one is allowed to begin investigation of the scene without an NTSB member present. And they weren't just misspeaking. What that representative told the authors was perfectly in line with NTSB policy listed right on their website. In this case, the FBI arrived several hours prior to the NTSB. Anywhere from five to eight hours prior, depending on who you believe. And that is an important detail that we'll talk about. Not only did they get there early, way before the NTSB, but they also immediately decided no sabotage was involved. Again, that is just not how these things work, even if the person who died is an elected official. And what the FBI essentially did by showing up before the NTSB in issuing this public statement that no sabotage was involved, that pretty much guaranteed that the ensuing NTSB investigation would be conducted under the thinking that there was no sabotage involved. Meaning, they never investigated if there was any sabotage involved. The FBI just broke protocol, showed up on the scene early, said nothing was amiss, and the investigation continued accordingly. 
And I don't know. I think it's something we could have looked into a little more. We'll get to a lot of reasons why, but it is worth asking, why was it different this time? Why was the FBI allowed to show up and start investigating? And what were they looking for? Could it be that cockpit voice recorder? that Carol Carmody mentioned almost immediately upon addressing the media. I don't know, but another concern that's brought up in the book American Assassination is how did the FBI even get to the scene as quickly as they did? According to St. Louis County Sheriff, that's St. Louis County in Minnesota, Rick Wahlberg, a team of FBI agents arrived on the scene around noon. The crash happened at 10.20 a.m. An alert went out around 10.50 a.m. Gary Ullman the guy who took his own plane out to look for the crash scene, found it around 11 a.m. He directed emergency personnel to the scene around 11.15 a.m. The first formal announcement from the FAA that a crash had occurred went out at 12.10 p.m. If Sheriff Rick Wahlberg is to be believed, the FBI showed up before the FAA even announced an accident had occurred. And here's the thing. The crash scene in Eveleth, Minnesota, is approximately 175 miles from the FBI field office in Minneapolis. And the plane crashed in a swamp area that could only be accessed via ATV, which would add even more time to the trip. The crash happened at 10.20 a.m. Sheriff Wahlberg says the FBI showed up around noon. Even if the FBI left Minneapolis literally the second the plane went down at 10.20 a.m., arriving by noon would not be possible unless they had some reason to leave earlier. And even then, even if they did leave immediately at 10.20 a.m., who told them about the crash? Gary Ullman was the first person to find the wreckage, and he didn't find it until 11 a.m., and he later confirmed that he definitely did not contact the FBI, because why would you? That's not how plane crash investigations work. Again, the NTSB has jurisdiction over that scene until it's determined a crime may have occurred. So who called the FBI, and how did they get there so quickly? Why were they there at all? There's another witness who says the FBI showed up about two hours after the crash, which would have been closer to 12.30. But that's still a remarkably quick response time that would still require them to have heard about this way before anyone else. Gary Ullman also said the FBI was there by no later than 1 p.m. Someone filed a Freedom of Information Act request to obtain the FAA logs that would indicate who arrived on the scene and when. And guess what? The FAA response was that the records had been destroyed. Cool, cool, cool. In the book American Assassination, the authors trace what would have been the FBI's route to the crash scene. And here goes. The FBI office in Minneapolis is a 17-minute drive from the airport. Which airport? Doesn't matter. Whether they were going to Hubert H. Humphrey in Minneapolis or one of the smaller regional airports in Crystal or Eden Prairie, still a 17-minute drive. And that's assuming there's light traffic. From there, they have to actually get on the plane. And let's assume that, being the FBI and all, the plane was ready to go as soon as they got there, and they weren't required to pass through any security checks. That makes for a very conservative estimate of 10 minutes passing between the time they arrived at the airport and when they got on the plane. Once again, giving the benefit of the doubt and assuming things like this happen much faster for the FBI, let's say the plane took 10 minutes to take off from there. If you've ever flown, you know that's a very conservative estimate also, but still, this is the FBI. 
So now we're at 37 minutes total for the trip so far, and we still have to fly. The flight from Minneapolis to Duluth takes about 40 minutes. Another conservative estimate, let's say it took them five minutes to exit the plane. Now we're at 82 minutes, and we're just in Duluth. The feds still have to get from there to the crash scene in Eveleth. To do that, they rented cars. Again, let's very conservatively say they spent another 10 minutes renting and finding their cars. Even if everything was set up for them when they arrived, you still have to walk. You have to get off the plane and get in your car. They aren't teleporting to their cars. So 10 minutes to rent the cars and drive away. The drive from Duluth to Eveleth is a little over an hour, according to Google Maps. But the book, once again, gives the benefit of the doubt and says the drive would take 50 minutes. From there, seeing as how the crash was in a remote area that could only be reached by ATV, add another conservative 10 minutes from arrival in Eveleth to make it to the scene. That puts the total trip time at 2 hours and 32 minutes. So how did they get to the scene by noon? This crash happened at 10.20 a.m. Gary Ullman didn't visually confirm it until 11 a.m. To get to the scene by noon, the FBI would have had to leave by 9.28 a.m., which you'll note is before the crash even happened. Even if the noon arrival time is wrong, and they actually got there at 1, and witnesses have confirmed they were there no later than 1, that means they still had to leave at 10.28 a.m., which is still minutes after the crash, and well before anyone had even identified the crash scene or issued any official notifications that a crash had happened. FBI agent Paul McCabe eventually made a statement claiming that the FBI didn't arrive until 3 p.m., but... That not only conflicts with eyewitness accounts, including a local sheriff who recalled seeing FBI agents from Minneapolis who he knew personally on the scene by 1.30 p.m. Not only does Paul McCabe's statement conflict with that, but his statement also conflicts with what the FBI now says happened in terms of them arriving on the scene in Minneapolis, which we'll talk about way more when we dig into the FBI files that have since been declassified about this. But the short version is they argue that they sent FBI agents from Duluth directly to the scene. And two problems with that. One, the authors of this book asked about that at the time and were very clearly told no agents were sent from Duluth. Also, if the FBI didn't get there until three, why would it take agents so long to get there from Duluth? That's like an hour, hour and a half drive from Duluth to Eveleth. We've just talked about that. So did they get there at three or did they get there around noon or one, but those agents were from Duluth? Because even then, one of the witnesses on the ground, a local sheriff, identified FBI agents from Minneapolis on the scene as early as 1.30 p.m. When asked for log records to show exactly who arrived and when, McCabe claimed those records didn't exist because they weren't important. They seem pretty important, personally, but I don't crash airplanes or investigate airplane crashes, so what do I know? And remember, Carol Carmody said the first order of business would be finding that cockpit voice recorder. While this plane wasn't required to carry one, because of the type of clientele this particular plane tended to service, they were often equipped with one anyway. 
At one point, Carmody clearly had reason to believe this flight had one, but it was never found. Is that why the FBI was there? What exactly was their role in this investigation? Even crazier, in the NTSB's final report on the crash, they list the following agencies as having assisted in the investigation. The FAA, Aviation Charter, Raytheon Aircraft Company, Hartzell Propeller Company, Transportation Safety Board of Canada, Pratt and Whitney Canada. Do you notice anything weird about that list? If not, I won't keep you in suspense. The FBI is not on it. This, despite FBI agent Paul McCabe announcing almost immediately after the crash that a team of FBI agents would be assisting the NTSB with the investigation. And also, we've investigated enough already to know it wasn't terrorism. So the authors of American Assassination found that weird. So they reached out to a guy named Frank Hildrup, who worked at the NTSB at the time. And here's how that conversation went. Authors. Why was the FBI not listed as a party to the investigation in the final NTSB report on the Wellstone case? Frank Hildrup? They were not a party to the investigation. Authors. Then what were they doing on the scene for eight hours prior to the arrival of the NTSB? Frank Hildrup? I can't say for sure since I only took over on Monday, but maybe they were responding to the, you know, conspiracy theories. Authors. How could there have been conspiracy theories before the plane crashed? Sidebar, that's a very good question. Also, here's another interesting exchange from that conversation. Authors, one more question. Why no public hearing for this incident? Frank Hildrup, we only have hearings for high-profile cases. What? Cases do not get more high-profile than this. This is the official NTSB policy regarding that. Public hearings generally are held with regard to a major accident in which there is wide and sustained public interest. In what world is the crash of a sitting U.S. senator who dies days before his election not high-profile enough to justify a public hearing? That detail, when taken into account along with the FBI being allowed to investigate first and the NTSB willingly engaging in the exact kind of speculation their own policy seems to forbid, meant a lot of people understandably had a lot of questions about what really happened in the crash of Senator Paul Wellstone's plane. And I am one of those people. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So in that last section... We talked about all the weirdness surrounding the early reporting about the Wellstone crash. Things didn't get any more normal when the NTSB finally issued their official report on the crash, or in the 13 months that it took for that to finally happen. The report was released on November 18th, 2003, and one thing to know right off the bat, all that weather stuff, ignore it all. Turns out none of that mattered, despite intense speculation for days and weeks after the crash that the pilots were flying in terrible weather, the NTSB decided weather wasn't a factor in the crash. And sure, 
sometimes people get things wrong. Human error is a thing. But the ramifications of this go beyond just getting the details wrong. Remember, this was 2002, well before social media feeds, if any existed at all, were littered with news stories. Unless you were in the Minnesota area or otherwise had a reason to be invested in Minnesota politics, those early news reports were likely to be the only news reports that you would have paid attention to at the time. I'm certainly not going to do it, but I suspect that if you were to survey people who do remember Wellstone's death, a lot of them would still tell you his plane went down in bad weather. But nope. After 13 months, the NTSB came back with a whole new explanation. This time around, they very definitively concluded that they weren't quite sure what happened. But maybe it was pilot error? Now, again, if you were closely following this story at the time, you probably would have seen that pilot error thing coming from a mile away. Because months before the NTSB report was released, the NTSB released a bunch of information about the pilots. And most of it was not good. Now, before we get into that information, let's talk about the fact that this information was released at all. Remember, there was no public hearing held for this crash. That's literally the final line of the NTSB report. Quote, no public hearing was held for this accident. End quote. They only hold public hearings for high-profile cases with significant public interest. So this crash wasn't high-profile or interesting enough for a public hearing, but it was interesting and high-profile enough that they'd release dirt on two dead pilots to the public before the investigation is even finished. Does that sound right? Why would you leak information in advance of the final report to the press for a case you've deemed too unimportant to warrant a public hearing? It makes no sense, but that's exactly what happened. In February 2003, the NTSB released files from their still-in-progress investigation that raised a lot of questions about the pilots of Wellstone's ill-fated flight. For example, February 26, 2003 New York Times article that carried the headline, Inquiry on Wellstone Crash Finds Oddities About Pilot. It featured all sorts of salacious details about one of the pilots. Keep in mind, there were two. But in this case, they were mostly talking about Richard Conry. And the things he got up to people, he claimed to have logged 514 hours of flight time while working at American Eagle. But a separate logbook he maintained claimed it was only 14.4 hours. Or how in the weeks before the crash... He, and this is a quote from the article, committed such errors as misidentifying his aircraft type to air traffic controllers and mistaking a switch that turned on the autopilot for a switch that activated a system to keep the plane pointed straight. There was also an LA Times article the same day about how Conry almost canceled the flight because of bad weather, which is presented as if it's something scandalous, as opposed to proof that the weather actually cleared up enough for Conry to be comfortable flying shortly thereafter. But there was another revelation, one so shocking, I haven't even mentioned it up to this point for dramatic reasons. Get this, in 1990, Richard Conry was convicted of mail fraud. What these articles and the eventual NTSB report both fail to mention is what any of this has to do with the crash that killed Paul Wellstone. The report spends a lot of time implying or suggesting that these pilots were incompetent, but at no point does it ever say exactly what mistakes they made that led to the crash. 
it does mention that at 10.18 a.m., all seemed to be normal, and then like 60 seconds later, it was not. Go watch any documentary about airline disasters. Crashes caused by pilot error typically involve a series of mistakes. And in this case, did they even have time to make a series of mistakes? Between 10.18 a.m. when things were normal and 10.19 a.m. when everything seemed to go awry? The speed at which things go from normal to deadly implies something a little more dramatic than a simple switch flip oopsie occurred. The book American Assassination goes into a lot of detail shooting holes in the NTSB conclusion presented in this report. And guess what? It's filled with all sorts of technical jargon and things of the like and would honestly make for a boring stretch of podcast. If you're able to find a copy of the book, I encourage you to read what they have to say about it in its entirety. But I want to focus on the most important finding, the probable cause finding, the money shot. Here's what it says. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's failure to maintain adequate airspeed, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which they did not recover. Now, a couple things about that conclusion. One, they never actually prove it in that report, nor do they even pretend to. They never say how the pilots missed the various warning signs of their impending doom or why they didn't make any adjustments to fix it, or to quote NTSB board member Richard Healing's comments on the conclusion, we don't know why. It's quite speculative. But there's something else that makes their conclusion even more suspect. In an effort to prove how right they were, the NTSB used flight simulators to recreate the crash based on their conclusion that insufficient airspeed led to a stall. Except here's the problem. They couldn't do it. In those simulations, the planes never stalled. Even when they slowed to the airspeed the NTSB claimed Wellstone's flight was traveling at when the crash happened. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I think being able to prove your hypothesis is a pretty important part of the scientific process, and that never happens here. Which makes them leaking that info about the pilots ahead of time all the more suspect. To me, it feels like that thing cops do, where they decide someone is guilty and conduct their investigation accordingly, just looking for only the evidence that supports their hunch. This feels like the NTSB planned to call this pilot error from the beginning and immediately set about finding evidence, in air quotes, to back that up, even though none really exists. So if you're keeping score at home, here's what's happened so far. Paul Wellstone's plane crashed just days before an election he was probably going to win, the FBI showed up immediately and said terrorism wasn't involved on day one from the scene of the crash, even though they weren't supposed to be there. The NTSB immediately speculated on the cause of the crash, even though they don't speculate on cause. And then a few months later, they released character damaging information about both pilots, but especially Richard Connery, despite the crash having been determined to not be of public interest. Then later that year, the NTSB issued a final report with an unproven hypothesis for a conclusion, and that doesn't even list the FBI as having participated in the investigation. So, yeah, of course people think something nefarious was afoot here. Character flaws don't speak to a person's ability to fly an airplane. And since we're fresh off of talking about one strange set of documents pertaining to the Wellstone crash, those being the NTSB report, let's talk about another. As I mentioned on the first episode, 
the FBI finally released their files on Paul Wellstone in 2010 in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. And honestly, they just make everything seem more suspicious. Because first of all, remember, the NTSB report doesn't even mention the FBI being involved in the investigation. Meanwhile, you know what I found in the FBI files? A letter from Robert Mueller to Carol Carmody thanking her for thanking the FBI for assisting in the investigation. Also, as mentioned on the first episode, the FBI files show Wellstone was being followed by the FBI since way back in 1971 when he was just a 20-something college professor who hated the Vietnam War. It also shows that they investigated the death threats made against Wellstone after he voted against the 1991 Iraq War resolution. Or, as Minnesota Public Radio put it, the FBI became his protector, which that seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Stuff like that is their actual job, after all. That same NPR piece about the FBI files also makes a big deal out of the fact that, and this is a quote, the FBI pursued several criminal leads in the first two days of the investigation. That's important for a couple of reasons. One, if they were still investigating leads on day two, how were they so sure on day one at the scene that terrorism or sabotage wasn't involved? Because that's when Paul McCabe made that statement. On the scene, on the day of the crash. Most likely before the NTSB even arrived. Speaking of Paul McCabe and who arrived when, remember that thing he said about the FBI not showing up until 3 p.m., which contradicted the accounts of witnesses at the scene? Well, now the FBI files claim two agents from the satellite office in Duluth responded immediately, but still no specifics on what time they arrived. When the authors of American Assassination asked, they were told no agents from Duluth were sent. But here we are eight years later, 2010, and the claim is agents were sent from Duluth, but we aren't sure when they arrived, which is very convenient because it sure as shit wouldn't have been 3 p.m. if they were coming from Duluth, which is when the FBI first claimed they got there. One especially weird thing that I found in the files, which apparently didn't raise any alarm at Minnesota Public Radio, are two different reports that both kind of make it seem like the FBI didn't even have access to the actual crash scene until the next day, which, reminder, would be a full day after they assured the world that no foul play was involved. The two reports, one dated November 5th, 2002, from the Minneapolis Evidence Response Team, and another dated October 30th, 2002, from the Minneapolis Squad 4 slash Duluth resident agents, both of those reports mention an initial briefing with the NTSB that happened at 10 p.m. the night of the crash. And then they both go on to mention a body recovery process that started the next morning. This quote from the evidence response team report is especially interesting. Here goes. By Saturday morning, a custom-built vehicle called the Brute, specifically designed for use in this type of terrain, and a tracked piece of firefighting equipment had been brought to the scene to shuttle personnel from the paved road to the crash site. Minneapolis Evidence Response Team initially assisted the NTSB in searching the wooded area around the crash site to locate and flag the flight data recorder, aircraft parts, and signs of prop shear in the trees. First of all, I'm going to file a Freedom of Information Act request to get some pictures of the brute. That thing sounds neat. But also, am I crazy? Am I reading that wrong? 
That statement makes it seem like the investigation didn't even really start until well after the FBI said it wasn't terrorism. And how was their involvement overlooked in the final NTSB report? The woman who was ultimately responsible for that report sent Robert Mueller a letter thanking him for his agency's involvement. Also, want to know why they're not being a public hearing is so important? Because it means eyewitness testimony didn't have to be added to the official record, like the witness report in the FBI file about a guy who heard gunshots in the area around the time of the crash, or the reports of residents in the area whose descriptions of the plane flying overhead aren't really consistent with the slowdown and stall theory, or the army photographer who emailed the FBI to tell them that, based on his history of photographing crash scenes, the Wellstone site wasn't consistent with an accident. All of that gets to be ignored in the final report because no public hearing. How convenient. But to me, the absolute weirdest thing in those FBI files is something that seems pretty normal at first. A lot of these files I've mentioned so far are buried in between pages and pages of newspaper and magazine articles about this crash. Mainstream news outlets, conspiracy websites, articles from the authors of American Assassination, just so many articles about the Paul Wellstone crash. And here's a question. Why? Why did they need to collect so many articles about a plane crash they quickly decided wasn't a crime? We know serial killers do that kind of thing to remember and celebrate their victims. It's not likely that's what the FBI was up to. But hear me out on this. I know it's a thing I can't prove and no one can prove, so feel free to take this idea with a grain of salt. But what if they were trying to figure out what bases they'd need to cover when they were eventually forced to release these files? Because it does seem like the FBI files answer a lot of questions conspiracy types had about their arrival and whatnot, but they do nothing to explain why those answers are so inconsistent with what they said about their arrival at the time. Also, the Minnesota Public Radio piece on the FBI files makes a big deal of them investigating those criminal leads, but... There are a couple of leads that were sent their way that it appears they for sure did not investigate. In a few different emails contained in the FBI files, concerned citizens whose names have since been redacted from history bring up an important point, which is, hey, you know who, more than anyone else, would have wanted Paul Wellstone dead? The Bush administration. I know that a team of war criminals who invaded an entire country on false pretenses costing countless innocent Iraqis their lives would also kill one dude is an insane suggestion. But it's a suggestion a lot of people were concerned about at the time. And you know what? It's not as crazy of an idea as it seems. I mean, it's crazy. The details are batshit insane. But the idea that they do it? People make a perfectly reasonable case, if you ask me. You didn't have to be the FBI to hear speculation like that at the time. On October 28th, 2002... Michael Neiman, writing for the Independent Media Institute, published an article that was very provocatively titled, Was U.S. Senator Paul Wellstone Murdered? Here's a quote from the article. Anyone familiar with my work knows that I'm certainly not a conspiracy theorist, but to be honest, I know I wasn't alone in my initial reaction at this week's horrible and tragic news, that being my surprise that Wellstone had lived this long. He also talks about feeling shame over not sharing his suspicions that Wellstone's life was in danger 
Back when Wellstone was still alive, he didn't want to get called a conspiracy theorist, you see. He says he knew of a few journalists who felt the same way, that they suspected Wellstone might literally die for the stances he was taking against the Bush administration, but that they also didn't want to risk their careers by speculating on it publicly. Here's another quote. There is no indication today that Wellstone's death was the result of foul play. What we do know, however, is that Wellstone emerged as the most visible obstacle standing in the way of a draconian political agenda by an unelected government. And now he is conveniently gone. End quote. So let's talk about the draconian political agenda in question there, because I think it's important to understanding why people might have secretly worried that Wellstone would eventually be killed. I think it all starts with something I've mentioned on this show before, which is the Project for the New American Century. That was established in 1997 as a nonprofit educational organization. Its stated goal was, quote, to promote American global leadership, which right off the bat, oh no. The group publicly stated its belief that American leadership is good both for America and the world, which is highly debatable, especially when you take it in context with another stated goal of the PNAC, which was to promote, and this is another quote, a Reaganite policy of military strength and moral clarity. Oof. And a chill goes down the spines of our Central American listeners. Of the 25 people who signed the PNAC's founding statement of principles, 10 went on to serve in the George W. Bush administration, including Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. And if you've ever seen the film Vice, you know what those motherfuckers got up to in the 2000s. And if you haven't seen the movie Vice, I highly recommend it, if for no other reason than to see Dick Cheney have a heart attack six different times. Comedy gold. Anyway, the Project for the New American Century was meant to be a think tank to give Republicans a, quote, compelling vision for American foreign policy, end quote. They believed that American conservatives were adrift in the area of foreign policy, and they advocated a more elevated vision of America's international role, another quote, and suggested that the United States should adopt a stance of benevolent global hegemony. In other words, we should police the world to make sure everyone is adhering to our interests. A year before forming the PNAC, American neoconservative war hawk Robert Kagan published an article called Toward a Neo-Reganite Foreign Policy. That article posited that conservatives and liberals alike had been conducting foreign policy in a peace-oriented manner and more inwardly focused way, presuming the public to be in that mindset. They argued that 90s America was in a similar situation to 70s America, where we were oriented toward peace with the Soviet Union and that Reagan turned America's foreign policy orientation around, instituting a more aggressive, anti-communist approach. And to the people who founded the Project for the New American Century, that's a good thing. And that's what they wanted to return to. Fuck peace. We should be in a constant state of fear and war. When the PNAC was founded a year after that article, 
it launched with the goal of making a very specific dream come true. And that dream is benevolent hegemony, a scenario in which the United States has defeated all sources of evil in the world and, as a result, enjoys strategic and ideological predominance throughout the globe. It had three imperatives, increased defense budget, obviously, citizen involvement, a.k.a. strengthening the ties between citizens and military life. Thank you very much, NFL. You did it. And moral clarity. Here's a quote about that one. The United States achieved its present position of strength not by practicing a foreign policy of live and let live, nor by passively waiting for threats to arise, but by actively promoting American principles of governance abroad, democracy, free markets, respect for liberty. In case it's unclear, they're talking about preemptive military action there, invading a country before it can even pose a threat. Minority report shit. They also added this. Sometimes that means not just supporting U.S. friends and gently pressuring other nations, but actively pursuing policies in Iran, Cuba, or China, for instance, ultimately intended to bring about a change of regime. One regime change the PNAC was especially interested in was Iraq. They advocated for it in a 1998 letter signed by 18 people, again, 10 of whom went on to serve in the Bush administration. But the project's most alarming moment happened in 2000, when a PNAC report called Rebuilding America's Defenses predicted that the shift to get Saddam Hussein out of power would come about slowly unless there were, and here's a quote, some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote. So, in case you're wondering where all of that Bush did 9-11 stuff started, there you go. A year before 9-11 happened, the people who benefited from it the most, both politically and financially, were writing papers about how beneficial something like 9-11 would be. Weird. By the time 9-11 happened, Dick Cheney was vice president, Donald Rumsfeld was secretary of defense, and Paul Wolfowitz was his deputy at the Pentagon. Here's a quote about 9-11 from Bob Woodward's book, Bush at War. The next morning, before it was even clear who was behind the attacks, Rumsfeld insisted at a cabinet meeting that Saddam's Iraq should be a principal target of the first round of the war on terrorism. But they weren't just interested in Iraq. General Wesley Clark mentioned the post-9-11 atmosphere among the PNAC-laden Bush administration in an interview around that time. He claimed he was told as early as September 20th, 2001, that we'd be going to war with Iraq. A few weeks later, the same source, a military general who worked at the Pentagon, told Clark it was actually way bigger than Iraq. Here's a quote from Wesley Clark. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office, today. And he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, don't show it to me, end quote. 
So the Bush administration didn't just come into office hoping to take down Iraq. They had a plan to completely rework American foreign policy and kind of the entire world. No matter where you stand on the Bush did 9-11 theory, one thing we can all agree on is that Dick Cheney and his corporate cohorts made a ton of money as a result of our invasion of Iraq. The most obvious example of that is Halliburton, the company Dick Cheney was the CEO of right up until the point he became vice president. Halliburton's business dealings with the military skyrocketed under the Bush-Cheney administration. The company rose to seventh largest military contractor in 2003, up from the 22nd largest in just 2000, three short years. In 2004, the New York Times reported that Cheney received nearly $2 million from Halliburton while he was in office. In 2001, Halliburton was awarded a contract to provide food, housing, fuel, and other logistical support for troops in the Middle East. That contract generated $5 billion for Halliburton just through 2004. In March 2003, Kellogg, Brown, and Root, which was Halliburton's construction and engineering subsidiary, was awarded a no-bid contract to restore and operate Iraqi oil wells. That contract was classified just before the invasion of Iraq, go figure, but it's estimated to have been worth approximately $7 billion. So the Bush-Cheney regime had a vested financial interest in making sure their revival of the American war machine moved forward, as did countless other corporate cronies who stood to profit from an eventual war in Iraq and beyond. And Paul Wellstone opposed that war. But his opposition was deeper than that. Keep in mind, this is all happening in a world that was fresh off of 9-11. The Bush administration didn't have a lot of opposition when it came to the war in Iraq at first. The Senate was mostly falling in line, but Wellstone was not. And the fact that he got a boost in the polls from opposing the war made it very likely that some of his fellow Democrats might take the same approach. Wellstone had the most consistent record of opposing Bush administration initiatives of any member in the Senate. He was the chairman of the Securities Reform Committee. He was attempting to block the nomination of William Webster, who was a former CIA and FBI head and good, good friend of big business types, from becoming the chairman of the SEC's Accounting Oversight Commission. He was also one of the lead voices pushing for an investigation into $350 million that went missing from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, a matter Bush's Secretary of Interior, Gail Norton, twice pleaded the fifth over when asked about it. Another thing Wellstone was vocally opposed to, the Bush administration practice of allowing Homeland Security contracts to be signed with American companies that had moved offshore to avoid paying taxes. Those contracts, along with the Halliburton contracts, were a huge point of contention when this war finally started. Wellstone proposed legislation to prevent these contracts, and the measure passed by a voice vote on the Senate floor. And then guess what? The measures were withdrawn after Paul Wellstone died. How convenient. Another thing Wellstone was actively involved in was trying to pass legislation to protect workers and consumers against asbestos poisoning. 
And that might not strike you immediately as a stance that would put a person's life in danger. But consider this. The aforementioned Halliburton was deeply involved in the asbestos issue due to a previous merger with a company called Dresser Industries. That merger brought lots of asbestos liabilities with it, estimated to be $2.2 billion over a 15-year period if things went the way Wellstone wanted. Do people ever get murdered for financial reasons? Is money ever a motive for murder? I don't know. I should look that up. Anyway, on account of all that, the Bush administration was laser-focused on getting Wellstone out of office. By October 2002, Bush had visited Minnesota four times to drum up support for Wellstone's opponent, Norm Coleman. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on attack ads. At a meeting with war veterans in Wilmar, Minnesota, two days before his death, Wellstone said that Dick Cheney told him, quote, if you vote against the war in Iraq, the Bush administration will do whatever is necessary to get you. There will be severe ramifications for you and the state of Minnesota. But, reminder, he did vote against the war in Iraq, and it actually improved his standing in the polls. A Minneapolis Star Tribune survey from the week of October 11, 2002, showed that 47% of voters supported Wellstone, compared to 41% for Norm Coleman. Around this time, publications were running all sorts of stories about how the Bush-Cheney machine wanted nothing more than to defeat Paul Wellstone. And it was becoming more and more clear that they were probably going to fail. That's obviously not proof that Paul Wellstone was murdered by the Republicans, but it is motive, which is a key aspect of any murder case. Paul Wellstone presented a legitimate obstacle to the goals of the Bush administration. He was maybe going to filibuster the Homeland Security Act. He opposed them on tax cuts, the SEC, and the war in Iraq. He wanted to open further investigations into 9-11. If there was anyone the Republicans might have considered assassinating in 2002, it was Paul Wellstone. And then there's the Senate split. Before the 2002 midterm elections, the Senate was at a massively uncomfortable 49-49 split between Republicans and Democrats. There were a couple independents in there. By the time those elections were over, the Republicans had a 51-48 majority, meaning they'd have a much easier time getting their various war requests fulfilled without much opposition. Wellstone's death, coupled with Walter Mondale's subsequent loss, made for one of those seats the Democrats lost. The other was Max Cleland's Senate seat in Georgia, which I think is another fine example of how far Republicans were willing to go to win that Senate majority. After Wellstone's death, according to the authors of American Assassination, $700,000 that was meant to be used to keep him from winning was reallocated to be used to keep Cleland from winning. I can't confirm, but it's possible that some of that money went toward one of the most insane and disgusting attack ads of all time. Because here's the thing about Max Cleland. He's a decorated Vietnam War veteran who lost both legs and his right arm during a mission in Quezon, which makes it all the more crazier that his opponent, a guy named Saxby Chambliss, with the full support of the Bush administration, ran attack ads claiming Max Cleland was 
unpatriotic because he opposed George W. Bush. In the commercials, Cleland was photoshopped into pictures with Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. So basically, a guy who lost three limbs serving in his country on the battlefield was less of a patriot than the lawyer-turned-conservative politician he was facing who never served in the military at all. Why? Because that Vietnam veteran voted against Republicans on an amendment to the Chemical Weapons Treaty that would have allowed, quote, terrorist nations, that's a Bush administration quote, to be on United Nations weapons inspections teams in Iraq. And somehow that shit worked. In the weeks leading up to the election, groups that had previously supported Cleland started withdrawing that support. Even the veterans of foreign wars endorsed Chambliss, who, again, never even served in the military. Meanwhile, Cleland was awarded a silver star for his service and once served as the head of the Veterans Administration. Despite holding a 22-point lead over Chambliss in the polls at one point, Cleland lost in a massive upset. But what I'm getting at here is that the death of Paul Wellstone happened at a point in history when Republicans were doing everything possible to make sure no one stood in the way of their plans to set the United States on course for a perpetual state of war in the Middle East. Does that mean they'd go so far as to commit murder by airplane? I don't know. Even if it does, I'm certainly not going to be the one to prove it's true. But I will tell you this. Republicans, especially Republicans with ties to the Bush-Cheney machine, have more than one fortuitously timed plane crash on their record. And I'm not just talking about 9-11. Hey, just a reminder that if you were a Patreon or Supercast subscriber, you would have already heard this podcast by now, except with way more information. In the extended series, we get into things like the sketchy Sandy Hook truther history of one of the authors of American Assassination, potential voting machine malfeasance carried out by Republicans in 2002, Carol Carmody's connections to the CIA. There's even a bonus plane crash. Alaska Airlines Flight 261, a disaster that partially inspired the Denzel Washington film Flight and also took the life of another potential Bush administration opponent. To hear all of that and lots of other bonus episodes from this show and the entire Unpops Network, head to patreon.com slash unpops or unpopsnetwork.supercast.tech. Thanks. We love you. Let's get back to the show. So now let's talk about some of those strange plane crashes. Case in point, in 2008, an Ohio attorney and former Republican named Cliff Arnebeck started gathering evidence to file a racketeering claim against Carl Rove which included the claim that Rove had masterminded the theft of the 2004 election. His key witness was a guy named Michael Connell, who was the Bush campaign's chief IT strategist. This is a quote from Cliff Arnebeck. We detected a pattern of criminal activity. We identified Connell as a key witness, as the implementer for Rove. Arnebeck actually managed to get a deposition out of Connell, and hoped to have him testify against Karl Rove in open court. But that never happened because on December 19th, 2008, at the age of 47, 
Michael Connell died when the single-engine Piper Saratoga plane he was piloting alone crashed en route from Washington, D.C. to Ohio. How weirdly convenient is that? And oh man, we are just getting started on the suspiciously well-timed plane crash front. Before we move on, let's just run through some of the details of the Wellstone crash. A Democratic candidate for Senate in the midst of a close race with huge implications for control of the Senate dies in a plane crash less than a month before their impending election. As politically convenient as it all may seem, Carol Carmody and the NTSB rush in to assure everyone that nothing weird happened, despite eyewitness accounts to the contrary. The eventual NTSB report blames the crash on pilot error. So we know all of that happened in the Wellstone crash. Now what if I told you all of that happened twice in the span of two years? Because it did. On October 16th, 2000, a plane carrying Missouri Governor Mel Carnahan, then a Democratic candidate for the Senate, crashed just weeks before the election he was running in. Shortly after the crash happened, acting NTSB head Carol Carmody assured the public that nothing odd was afoot, just regular plane crash shenanigans. The eventual NTSB report blamed pilot error. He just got disoriented is all, just like Wellstone's pilots. That despite eyewitness accounts of the Carnahan crash reporting an explosion, the sky turning red, and the plane going down in a fireball, none of which is indicative of sloppy piloting unless he hit an iceberg up there. That all implies sabotage of some sort. Planes don't just explode in the air on their own. But none of that came up in the final report. Just pilot error and nothing more. Sounds familiar, right? Now, if you're old enough to remember the early 2000s, you might vaguely recall this funny thing that happened where a guy running for office died in a plane crash, but still won the ensuing election because voters just hated his opponent that much. Well, that guy was Mel Carnahan, and the person he beat was John Ashcroft, who went on to be named Attorney General when George W. Bush took office. You might also remember John Ashcroft as the guy who did this in public while serving in one of the highest offices in all the land. You can see it in her eye. She's not yet begun to fly. It's time to let the mighty eagle soar once more. Let the eagle soar like she's never soared before. Coast to Golden Shore. Let the mighty eagle soar. You know what else he did? In his role as Attorney General, it was up to him to decide if the Paul Wellstone crash was worthy of a criminal investigation. As mentioned earlier, he decided that it was not, so those possibilities were literally never explored at all in any capacity. So add that to the odd coincidences between the Mel Carnahan and Paul Wellstone crashes. John Ashcroft was an integral figure in both of them. There is a key difference between the two crashes, though, in that Republicans still didn't win that Senate seat after Mel Carnahan died. 
Missouri law demanded that Carnahan still be on the ballot, at which point it was up to voters to decide if they wanted Ashcroft or a dead guy in office. They chose the dead guy, and his wife was appointed as his replacement. If the Republicans had won that seat, they'd have taken a 51-49 advantage in the Senate. Instead, it was split 50-50, but on the bright side, once Bush took office, Dick Cheney was the tie-breaking vote. But the circumstances tightened up a little more nicely for Republicans with the Wellstone crash. Laws in that state mandated that someone run in Paul Wellstone's place. And since his wife was on that plane with him, it wasn't going to be her. The Democrats ended up running Walter Mondale, who lost by a lot. Now, what are the odds of that? Not Walter Mondale losing. The odds of that were significantly high all the time. But... What are the odds of a senator dying in a plane crash just days before the election, even once? I get that they fly a lot, but that is a very specific window of time in which that plane crash needs to happen. The odds of that ever happening again in aviation history have to be incredibly slim, right? But it happened twice in two years both times to the benefit of the Republican Party, with John Ashcroft and Carol Carmody playing integral roles in both crashes. And in both cases, the cause was experienced pilots making unexplained, nonspecific, last-minute errors, even though people on the ground reported seeing and hearing things that weren't in line with the official report. All of that happened twice in two years. So if you're keeping count, we're up to three sketchy plane crashes that all at the very least had the potential to be beneficial to the Bush-Cheney war machine. And we're not done because for one thing, remember who we're talking about here, George Bush. Which George Bush? Does it matter? Do you think father and son somehow had differing goals when it came to America's potential world domination as foretold in the project for the new American century? A document that was also signed by Jeb Bush? Yeah, the Wellstone crash and eventually the Carnahan crash were to the benefit of George W. Bush, but his dad has a few well-timed plane crashes on his record as well. And before we get into them, just a reminder, George H.W. Bush was the 11th ever director of the CIA, a job he got despite being the head of the Republican National Committee during the Watergate scandal, and a staunch Nixon supporter through all of it. Sure, he only served as CIA director for one year, but he did serve in that role nonetheless, and a few short years after his tenure, he was vice president of the United States, a role he served in for eight years before becoming the first ever head of the CIA to become president. So with a background like that, He's going to know a thing or two about covert operations and suspicious deaths. I mean, there are rumors that George H.W. Bush was involved in the Kennedy assassination, for fuck's sake. And hey, sometimes those suspicious deaths are going to happen by airplane. Like the death of Omar Torrijos, for example. He was the de facto leader of Panama from 1968 to 1981. 1981, Bush's second year as second-in-chief is the year Omar Torrijos threatened to blow up the Panama Canal in the event of a United States invasion. Conveniently, it never came to that, because on July 31st, 1981, 
Omar Torrijos was killed when the plane he was flying in crashed. And in this case, it didn't just crash. It disappeared from radar and the wreckage wasn't found for another week. Torrijos was replaced as leader of Panama by CIA operative Manuel Noriega. Go figure. There was immediate speculation that this was a U.S.-backed assassination, as you'd expect. But good luck proving it, Panama. That said, in his 2004 book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, author John Perkins claims Torrijos was assassinated for refusing to align with U.S. corporate interests. He also claims in the book that he was party to a process of economic colonization of third world countries on behalf of a cabal of corporations, banks, and the U.S. government. Sounds like some wild conspiracy shit, I know, but that book spent 70 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and has since been published in at least 32 languages, for whatever that's worth. Oh, also all documents relating to the cause of the Torrijos crash, quote, went missing during the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama. Convenient again. And the Torrijos crash happened just a couple months after Ecuadorian President Jaime Roldos Aguilera died in a similarly suspicious crash that was similarly beneficial to U.S. interests. And of course, it was blamed on unexplained pilot error. So if you're still keeping track, we have Wellstone, Carnahan, Michael Connell, Omar Torrijos, Jamie Roldos Aguilera, that's five deaths by plane crash that all share very similar details. And one of those details is that all of those people, in one way or another, stood in the way of Republican dreams of a Reaganite future for America. And now let's talk about John Tower. He was a Republican who was appointed by Republicans to investigate Republicans. Specifically, in 1986, Reagan appointed John Tower as head of what came to be aptly named the Tower Commission, which was tasked with investigating the Iran-Contra scandal. Tower was a Republican, but he also tended to break with his party from time to time, but also supported George H.W. Bush during his confirmation as CIA director, so he probably seemed like a safe choice. Turns out he was not a safe choice. The Tower report sharply criticized the Reagan administration for their role in the scandal and even demanded that the president take accountability for what happened. He also left something out that everyone involved knew he knew, which was that George H.W. Bush was a central figure in the scandal, which makes what happens next very interesting. For starters, Reagan offered Tower the CIA director job shortly after the report came out but Tower declined the job. Question, do you think that move was intended to keep Tower from talking more because they knew he left some key details out? Maybe not, because George H.W. Bush actually nominated Tower to be his Secretary of Defense, but the Senate rejected his nomination. The first time that happened since 1959 because of stories about Tower's womanizing and problems with alcohol that were mysteriously leaked to the press. Now, can you guess who people suspect of leaking those stories? That's right, George H.W. Bush. The Senate rejection effectively derailed John Tower's career and paved the way for Dick Cheney 
to become Secretary of State instead. Shady, right? Now guess how John Tower eventually died. You guessed it! In a mysterious plane crash! That happened in 1991. By that point, he'd already written one tell-all book about his time in government, including some stuff about his investigation of the Iran-Contra scandal. Rumor was he and his daughter were working on a follow-up, which was to be a tell-all specifically about that scandal and the names involved in it. But before that could happen, the Atlantic Southeast Airlines commuter flight that John Tower and his daughter Marion were flying on crashed shortly before it was due to land. In a crash that, much like Wellstone's, involved two pilots making final contact with air traffic control that indicated no problems at all, and then crashing immediately afterwards for reasons that still aren't entirely clear. So now, just to update the tally, that's Paul Wellstone, Mel Carnahan, Michael Connell, Omar Torrijos, Jaime Raldos Aguilera, and James Tower. That's six weird deaths by plane crash, all of which happened at a time that made them beneficial, or at least potentially beneficial, to this country's Reagan, Bush, Cheney-fueled version of the future. So that's a lot of weird plane crashes. But there's an obvious question that needs to be asked here. How did they do it? Some of those earlier examples, especially Omar Torrijos, likely just involved smuggling an explosive of some sort on board the plane. Maybe they were shot down. Who knows how we were doing stuff like this in the 80s. But the Wellstone crash? That one happened at a point in history that opens up a whole new exciting possibility. Here's where it's going to get weird. I'm just going to say it. What if it was an EMP weapon of some sort? Wait, you have to hear me out. It's not as crazy as it sounds, even though I accept that it sounds kind of crazy. And I'm definitely not the only person to suggest this possibility, but we'll get to that in a bit. And if you're unfamiliar, EMP means electromagnetic pulse. Electromagnetic disturbances are why you have to turn off your electronics at the start of a flight. Flight paths are designed to fly around electromagnetic waves transmitted by radio stations and things of the like. Electromagnetic waves are very bad times for communication systems, much like the kind that are on airplanes. And here's the thing. Their power has definitely been harnessed for weapons purposes. Just because you can't go buy one at Gun World doesn't mean EMP weapons don't exist. And it doesn't mean they didn't exist by this point in history, which, just a reminder, 2002. October 2002 is the date Wellstone's plane crashed. And I I get it. It sounds like some science fiction shit, but it is not. In fact, I think when you take the loss of communication into account, an electromagnetic pulse of some sort kind of makes the most sense. Circling back to the Wellstone crash, keep in mind the NTSB blamed that crash on pilot error. But does that explain why they stopped talking to air traffic control? It's never really explained why their last contact with air traffic control indicated everything was fine, and then after two minutes of total silence, they crash into the ground. What if they couldn't talk to air traffic control anymore? What if they couldn't describe what was happening because the thing that caused them to crash also fried their ability to communicate? The wreckage from Paul Wellstone's crash produced billows of bluish-gray smoke, which is important because the fuel the plane was carrying produces black smoke, 
when it burns. And that fuel was in the wings, which did not burn. Only the fuselage burned, and the smoke was bluish gray. That's not a fuel fire. That's an electrical fire. Electrical fires produce bluish gray smoke. So what caused that electrical fire? Was it impact? Is that how electrical fires start? I mean, I guess that is possible. I'm not a plane mechanic. I wouldn't know for sure. But I do know that loss of communication, coupled with a plane inexplicably falling out of the sky, and an electrical fire doesn't seem like typical plane crashes into the ground and explodes behavior. So now, let's circle back to Paul Wellstone and that war he was opposing. It should be noted here, this is all theater of the mind stuff. I'm obviously not accusing anyone of anything. And even if I was, it's nothing that the people who looked into the Wellstone crash back when it happened and subsequently wrote books and articles about it haven't already suggested themselves. So with all that on the record, let's talk about a company called Raytheon. Raytheon and the Republican war machine go way, way, way back. When Reagan was in office, one of his signature projects was the Strategic Defense Initiative, which proponents and critics alike eventually took to calling Star Wars. The idea was basically that we'd put satellites equipped with lasers in space, and if Russia fired a nuclear weapon at us, we'd laser that bitch right out of the sky. Sounds crazy, and it sure was, but we pumped a whole lot of money into it. And one of the companies that got a good chunk of that money according to a 1986 New York Times article, was Raytheon, $17 million that year alone. Interestingly enough, that article is mostly about how Star Wars wasn't working, but that as a result of the research, a company called Maxwell Laboratories produced a functional railgun. What's that? It's a weapon that uses electromagnetic force to launch high-velocity projectiles. Neat! Speaking of high-velocity projectiles... Not only was Raytheon on board for Reagan's Star Wars project, they also teamed up with the first Bush administration during the 1991 Gulf War to produce a weapon that made the company a household name. That was the Patriot missile. The Patriot was credited with neutralizing Iraqi Scud missiles and ultimately winning the war, although that last part has been the subject of a lot of debate since then. But as someone who lived through it, and is old enough to remember, I can vouch for the fact that the Patriot missile was big, big news during the first Gulf War. If it could have appeared on The Tonight Show, they would have booked the Patriot missile. I'd be shocked if there isn't a Patriot missile card in that famous Gulf War trading card series Tops put out. Go watch Garden State if you don't know what I'm talking about. Or just Google it. Much like I could have Googled whether a Patriot missile card existed and thereby avoided this entire exchange. And also I just Googled it. And yes, there is a Patriot missile card in that Gulf War trading card series. You can buy it on Amazon. So there you go. That's how important the Patriot missile was to the first Gulf War. And seeing as how they manufactured and sold it, the Patriot missile was huge for Raytheon. According to a 1991 LA Times article, they had orders for 2,200 missiles in the early days of the first Gulf War. And hey, that doesn't sound like a lot. You can't go on Shark Tank and say you have 2,200 orders and expect to get funded by the likes of Mark Cuban. Ah, but here's the thing. Those missiles cost $500,000 each. That's $1.1 billion. And that price doesn't even include the radar, 
command center, computers, and launch equipment required to fire them, and Raytheon produced all of that also. So the first Gulf War was very lucrative for Raytheon. The team-up was so successful, George H.W. Bush, when he was still president, visited Raytheon headquarters and delivered a speech thanking them for their help winning the war. Now here's a really interesting quote from a 1991 Corp Watch article about Raytheon and the Patriot missile. Despite the war with Iraq, the immense size of the Reagan military buildup and the end of the Cold War are likely to result in the flattening of defense spending in coming years, with perhaps an eventual decline. Raytheon has steadily reduced its reliance on military spending, but it still derives over half of its sales from the Pentagon. And sure enough, that's what happened, right? Remember the project for the new American century? The chief complaint expressed in that document was that the country had become too peace-oriented and that we needed to change that and get back to war. And you know who probably agreed with that a whole lot? Raytheon. By 1991, they were the biggest surface-to-air missile producer in all the land. And that's a business model that requires war to succeed for an extended amount of time. And that's what the project for the new American century and the people behind it were promising. In other words, Raytheon's interests and the Reagan-Bush-Cheney machine's interests were likely pretty well aligned on most matters, especially war matters, but probably also, I don't know, the desire for Paul Wellstone to no longer be a member of the Senate. Again, not proof that anyone murdered anyone, not implying that I know what happened to Paul Wellstone, other than that he definitely did die in a plane crash. We'll never know. I'm just saying there were people who probably wouldn't have minded if he died, and I'm not the first person to say that. So, with all that in mind, let's talk about the history of Raytheon. For starters, the company was founded in 1922 in Massachusetts by Lawrence K. Marshall, Charles G. Smith, and Vannevar Bush. Any relation? Hey, no idea. I looked it up, and the definitive answer to that question seems to be, no one is really sure. Could just be coincidence, even though the police will tell you those don't exist when you're talking about murder. Anyway, while they're most known for their missiles... One of Raytheon's earliest inventions was the microwave oven. That happened mostly by accident back in 1945, but it's indicative of how invested Raytheon has been in electromagnetic wave technology since the World War II days. After inventing the microwave, they moved on to stuff like guidance systems, radio and television transmitters, all sorts of things that involve electromagnetic waves. And weapons. They also make weapons. But does that mean those two sides of the business are necessarily intertwined? Of course it does. They totally make weapons that harness the power of electromagnetic waves. That's half the reason people are so scared of 5G technology. Starting around 2002, Raytheon worked with the Defense Department to produce something called the Active Denial System, which is basically a crowd control system that allows law enforcement to hit unruly protesters with electromagnetic waves that render a person just kind of too uncomfortable to stay in the area. It's sort of like being microwaved. And the waves that weapon uses are in the same relative spectrum as the waves required for 5G to work. So people made that connection and decided 5G is a weapon. 
That's a whole other topic we've already covered on a previous episode. Go listen to that if you're curious. But what I'm getting at is that Raytheon knows a thing or two about electromagnetic weapons. That said, the active denial system and an EMP weapon capable of taking down an airplane are two vastly different things. I mean, probably. How would I know? But is there any evidence that Raytheon ever produced anything that could just EMP a plane out of the sky? Yes, there is actually. Starting around mid-2002, articles started surfacing about how a mysterious weapon called the E-bomb might see some use in Iraq. For example, there was a 2002 article published by New Scientist that includes this quote, High-power microwave devices are designed to destroy electronic equipment in command, control, communications, and computer targets, and are available to the U.S. military. They produce an electromagnetic field of such intensity that their effect can be far more devastating than a lightning strike. That same article mentioned that weapons targeting electronic equipment had already been used in the 1990s during the Balkan conflicts. They were called blackout bombs. And if you think EMP weapons sound like some sci-fi shit, listen to how these things work. Another quote from the article. Blackout bombs release a spider's web of fine carbon filaments into the air above electrical distribution infrastructures. This causes short circuits when the filaments touch the ground. End quote. Also, the Tomahawk missiles we used during the first Gulf War were outfitted with warheads that worked along those same lines, and we used them to attack the Iraqi power grid. So, as science fiction-y as it all sounds, EMP weapons have been around in various forms for a good damn while now. And in 2003, articles started popping up with headlines like this one from CBS News that was published on March 25th, 2003. U.S. drops E-bomb on Iraqi TV. Here's a quote. The highly classified bomb creates a brief pulse of microwaves powerful enough to fry computers blind radar, silence radios, trigger crippling power outages, and disable the electronic ignitions in vehicles and aircraft. Huh. But what about Raytheon specifically? Because so far I'm just saying that these weapons did exist by that point. And I'm glad you asked. There's a book out there called Weapons Grade, revealing the links between modern warfare and our high-tech world. It's written by a guy named David Hambling. And it's about exactly what it sounds like it would be about. How technological innovation and war are intrinsically linked. So, as you'd expect, Raytheon and EMP weapons both come up a whole bunch in that book. And at one point, while he's questioning how much progress the big players in EMP weapons technology, meaning the U.S. and the U.K. at the time, have made in the field... There's this quote about a 2002 statement from the Australian Defense Science and Technology Organization about their work on EMP weapons. Here goes. The Australian work was carried out in conjunction with U.S. defense electronics company Raytheon and involved fitting a radio frequency beam weapon to a Hercules transport aircraft. Unlike an E-bomb, which affects everything in the area, the output is channeled by a 2.5-meter antenna into a narrow beam. At a range of 2 kilometers, the impact zone was 30 meters in diameter. 
The exact power was not disclosed, but it was considered enough to knock out military electronics. End quote. And he adds in that book that what Australia was doing, and this is another quote, is likely to be a small-scale reflection of what other nations are doing. Do you think he's wrong about that? You think Australia was just lapping us in the field of EMP weaponry by 2002? Even if they were, they were still doing it in conjunction with Raytheon. And either way, that's proof that an EMP weapon that seems like it might be made for the express purpose of shooting planes out of the sky was already a thing that existed by 2002. That statement from Australia came out a month after the Wellstone crash. And let's unpack some of the details of that statement. Here's a really important section. Unlike an E-bomb, which affects everything in the area, the output is channeled by a 2.5-meter antenna into a narrow beam at a range of 2 kilometers. The impact zone was 30 meters in diameter. A range of 2 kilometers. You know how many feet that is? Of course you do. It's 6,561.68 feet. And unless I'm completely misunderstanding what range means, that sounds like from that distance, this device was capable of knocking out military electronics. So what could it do if a plane was at, say, 3,000 feet or 2,500 feet on its final approach to the airport it was supposed to land at? I bet it's even more reliable from that distance. But again, I'm not an electromagnetic wave expert, but it sure sounds like Raytheon had by 2002, developed a directed energy weapon that could conceivably shoot a plane out of the sky. And after eight years of boring warlessness from the Clinton administration, they'd have probably been as keen as anyone else to get back to selling surface-to-air missiles and things of the like as part of a huge Middle East war, which is a thing they'd already done a whole lot in the past in conjunction with this same relative bunch of Republican war hawks. Oh, and I'm sure it's just another coincidence, but Raytheon also makes the plane Wellstone was flying in that day. Again, all circumstantial bullshit, you know? Just because Raytheon and the Bush-Cheney regime had all the motive in the world to take out the person most likely to oppose their Iraq war efforts and had access to a weapon that was capable of doing it, doesn't mean they actually did it. In the eyes of history, they did not. And so, as the law dictates, we must accept that they are innocent, just like O.J. Simpson. But also like O.J. Simpson, let's talk about how they might have done it if they did do it. This actually brings us full circle to the book that started all of this, American Assassination, The Strange Death of Senator Paul Wellstone. They actually lay out a scenario for how this could have happened. And it works like this. For starters, remember the VOR? It's basically the system that airports use to guide a plane to where it's supposed to land. It's obviously more complex than that, but still. In the NTSB report about the Wellstone crash, they mentioned that the VOR was a little bit off, which seems like it wasn't really true, or at least not true enough to matter, but they included it anyway. The authors of American Assassination imply that, assuming the NTSB was indeed involved in a cover-up, that they included that detail in case anyone did eventually figure out that the VOR played a huge part in this crash. Basically, the scenario they put forward in the book 
involves a more powerful VOR placed near the airport where Wellstone was set to land. And that more powerful VOR would have, at the last minute, guided his plane toward where it eventually crashed. And go ahead, Google VOR and look at a picture of one and tell me that they appear to be housed in a whole separate building of their own, thus making a portable version unlikely. Like what, did Dick Cheney just build a VOR in the middle of Minnesota to take out Paul Wellstone and then dismantle it immediately after? No, obviously not. But they might have used the TACAN. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's short for Tactical Air Navigation System. Here's a description right from the always reliable Wikipedia. A tactical air navigation system, commonly referred to by the acronym TACAN, is a navigation system used by military aircraft. It provides the user with bearing and distance to a ground or shipborne station. It is a more accurate version of the VOR system that provides bearing and range information for civil aviation. How about that? Now there's this from the benefits section on that same Wikipedia page. Because the azimuth and range units are combined in one system, it provides for simpler installation. Less space is required than a VOR, because a VOR requires a large counterpoise and a fairly complex phased antenna system. A TACAN system, theoretically, might be placed on a building, a large truck, an airplane, or a ship, and be operational in a short period of time. Now guess who manufactures TACAN systems? Say it with me. Collins Aerospace. Oh, you thought I was going to say Raytheon, right? Well, if it makes you feel any better, Raytheon owns Collins Aerospace. They are a Raytheon company. So we are back on track. So now you don't need a whole separate building to set up an alternate VOR to draw this plane off course. You can just put that TACAN in a van that says American City Pest Control on the side or something and park it near where you want your target plane to crash. Then, after the plane makes final contact with air traffic control, you just flip on that TACAN system. The plane is going to follow whichever of those two signals is stronger. And a smaller airport is obviously going to have a lesser VOR. So your American City Pest Control van just needs one that's stronger than the one at Eveleth Airport to win that battle. And so once you flip on that alternate VOR system, the TACAN system, the plane is naturally going to start heading in a direction that is not where it's supposed to go. And even worse, you're not really going to notice because it's not like it's going to be a, a jolt. This is a natural program that all airplanes follow. This is the beacon they use to know where they're going. So if a different one takes over, you're just going to like turn a little bit, which is what the Wellstone plane did. It started heading toward the crash site, which was a couple miles south of where the actual runway was. And the change in course would especially not be that noticeable if you're flying into an airport you don't use that often. And who the hell's flying into Eveleth Airport on a regular basis? So now that you flipped on this alternate TACAN system, the plane has turned toward the eventual crash site, and everyone on board is chill about it because it seems like nothing is wrong. So then, when the plane is within range of your EMP airplane death ray that you developed with the Australian military that can shoot a plane down from a range of 6,000 feet or more, you fire that bitch right at the cockpit, disabling any electronic systems 
including communication systems inside the plane and rendering it uncontrollable. With that, you make a quick check to confirm that everything you need to be on fire is on fire. You gather up the cockpit voice recorder and American City Pest Control speeds off into the night, leaving the scene for suspiciously early FBI agents to inspect and reassure the public that no foul play was involved. That's the theory as presented in the book American Assassination, The Strange Death of Paul Wellstone. And I don't know, I think I'm buying it. It does seem far-fetched, but the available evidence about how and when EMP weapons were developed and who developed them makes it not that far-fetched. I mean, you have to admit, it is an aggressively clean way to murder someone. If you can cause their plane to crash in an empty field, that's perfect. And the weapons used in this scenario existed by then. So it's no crazier than suggesting that it might have been shot out of the sky by a missile. We know that's possible, but this would be so much easier. Witnesses might see that projectile traveling toward the plane in its final moments. They're not going to see an EMP. They'll just see a plane wandering aimlessly in the sky until it crashes. If you were the American government, would you tell the world you had that kind of capability? Of course not. You just use it for evil. That's what we do. Always. We are America. But hey, like I've said this entire time, according to history... Paul Wellstone died in an accidental plane crash. Everyone mentioned here, from the Reagan-Bush-Cheney regime to Raytheon and everyone in between, is obviously innocent until proven otherwise. But all that said, they also had the means, motive, and opportunity to kill Paul Wellstone. Anyway, with that, we have reached the end of this journey. If you want to look into this more yourself, we'll link to all the articles and resources that... I used. And hey, thank you for joining me. We'll be back to having guests on this podcast next week. Until then, I don't have anything to plug. Let's get out of here. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs>